Welcome to Round Guy, the podcast. Steve Filchin here along with Dave Johnson and Phil S. Dixon. He is a author and an authority on the Negro Leagues. We're talking baseball, and it may well be the only chance we get to as the major leagues are locked out and uh, they're fighting that out. And uh, whether or not we have a season here in 2022 is up in the air, but uh, that's okay because Phil Dixon is with us. Phil S. Dixon, you have authored a book that we will all have the ability to read uh, once uh, the baseball season is is uh, scratched. We'll have all the time in the world to read your book. Tell us about it and the Negro Leagues. And I got a ton of questions for you. But you start oh. off, uh, Phil, and give us the lowdown on your book. Yeah, you know, this is the hot stove league season is how I typically look at it. Even uh, going back to my youth, this was the time of year. There's no baseball, so you get to, to, to follow baseball by reading books. It's a great time to read books. We're indoors a lot more. And uh, so um, my last book, which was my ninth book, uh, was the Disney and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. And it gave me an opportunity to talk about, uh, first of all, a couple of great baseball players in Dizzy and Daffy Dean, and the fact that in 1934, after they beat the St. Louis Cardinals in the World Series, they went on a 15-day barnstorming tour against the greatest black baseball players in America. So uh, it was, uh, you know, it's a little bit of everything that we like with Negro League, Major League, and barnstorming. Uh, good baseball, lots of personalities right in a 15-day period. So it was a joy to write about that. And uh, if you uh, like good baseball stories, D.C. Dean is a uh, pretty good Well, uh, Phil, tell us a little bit about uh, when you mentioned the uh, Negro Leagues at that time. Uh, who were some of the star players on that roster? Well, let's see. They played against, in the case of D.C. Dean, he played against four teams. It was the Kansas City Monarchs, uh, the uh, Pittsburgh Crawfords. He played against the New York Black Yankees and also the Philadelphia Stars. But at that time, particular players on the uh, Monarchs was uh, um, uh, Wilbur Bullet Rogan was one of their great players. I consider him the greatest all-around baseball player in baseball history. That's a guy who could hit and pitch. Uh, he was, of course, playing, and uh, and there was a guy from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, by the name of Chip Brewer, who pitched for the Monarchs. He was in, he was on that tour. Of course, when they played the Pittsburgh Crawfords, uh, they ran into Coopapa Bill, Oscar Charleston, of course, the legendary Satchel Page, and Dizzy saw Satchel for the first time, and he told us a couple of writers a few months after that. He said, if you could get him and me talking about Satchel Page on the same team. He said we could win the pennant by the 4th of July and go fishing until the World Series starts. <laughs> and and uh, you talk about the Kansas City Monarchs, then you have to talk about Buck O'Neill. Was he, was he prominent at that time, or was he a little later than that? Yeah, he was a little later. At that time, he's traveling the country with some of the smaller, you know, maybe if we had to, if we had to put the Negro Leagues as the first tier, uh, and then some other teams were at the second tier. Buck was probably traveling in the third tier with the Miami Giants. And, I see. Uh, so, yeah, he hadn't quite made it up to the uh, Negro National League as of yet. 
but uh, he was on the way. And uh, but you know, George Scales, who was on the Hall of Fame list uh, this past week, he was the manager of the New York Black Yankees in 1934. Of course, he didn't get enshrined, but Buck O'Neill and uh, the legendary Bud Fowler did. So it was an interesting Sunday here. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, but there were some great players, and uh, like I said, uh, Chip Brewer had Iowa connections, having grown up in Des Moines. Tell us a little bit more about about the Negro Leagues and how Iowa was instrumental in in uh, fielding some some of the players in the Negro Leagues, and how barnstorming actually uh, ran you through the, the state of Iowa. Yeah, well, you know with. With Iowa, we can go way back to the turn of the century. Uh, there was a great team out of Waseca, Minnesota, who would come into Iowa, and uh, and they would play teams like uh, the Iowa. The Iowa, see, they were called the uh, the Brownies, the Brownies, and they were from Algona. Which, by the way, the later owner of the Kansas City Monarchs was born in Algona, Iowa, which was J.L. Wilkinson. But the Algona Brownies were the first African-American team to really bring recognition to Iowa as far as minority play. And they were champions in the entire state in 1903, 1904. Wow. It starts there, and it it just keeps getting better year after year. Uh, If you get into, like, maybe around 1912, 1911, uh, you had a team called the Browns Tennessee Rats, who were out of Holden, Missouri, and they would travel primarily in Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota. And uh, there was a great player by the name of John Donaldson who started off with uh, the uh, Algona Brownies. And the first time John Donaldson shows up in Minnesota, he's a member of the Algona Brown- excuse me, of, he was a member of the uh, Browns Tennessee Reds. The Algona Brownies, uh, they pretty much went belly up probably about 1904, 1905. When when would uh, 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 when the teams played, you know, being that 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 far back, you know, segregation was obviously still pretty prominent. Uh, where did these teams play? And and uh, I'm I collect uniforms and uh, in my love of the game of baseball, uh, I always. It always seemed to me that pictures I've seen, uh, some of the black uh, players in the teams were wearing what appeared to be maybe hand-me-down major league uniforms. Is that how they they uh, they got their uniforms? Is through some of the uh, the major league teams at that time? There were a few teams. I know the Cincinnati Tigers had uh, uniforms from the. Uh Cincinnati Reds, but for the most part, uh, they had their own equipment. And and one of the things about it, they weren't using hand-me-down equipment. These guys had the top equipment, and uh, they had top players. They just happened to be African-American players who were not able to get into the major leagues. But, uh, yeah, no, they didn't use a lot of hand-me-down equipment. Um, and some of these teams, I know, like uh, I'm trying to think of the Baltimore uh, – Royal Giants, the Brooklyn Royal Giants is the team I want to mention. They had five different changes of uniforms. So one of their features was if they came and they played a five-game series in any town, they were going to have a different uniform every day. And so when people came out, they were pretty entertained by that. So uh, 
Uh, yes. No. Uh, now, there were some teams that uh, worked in Iowa out of uh, Sioux City. Um, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Gilkerson Union Giants. Uh, they were prominent around the 1930s, and uh, they played around uh, Iowa quite a bit. And they worked out uh, typically either uh, Sioux City or Council Bluffs. I see. Okay. What was the pay scale at that time for the uh, Negro League players? You know, the, uh, I assume that some of the bigger stars or the better players perhaps uh, received more money, a little more money than some of the uh, others, or was it uh, was it a consistent pay rate? What was it like to earn a salary with a, a professional uh, Negro League team? Well, it was nothing like what the major leaguers were getting. Uh, you know, um, when when Dizzy Dean, uh, 1934, I write about it in my book, you know, he was holding out because he wanted more money, but he was getting uh, 7000 I think he was at $7,500 a year, uh, and he, he was holding out. But African-American baseball players made, played the entire summer, and make a thousand dollars for the entire summer. Buck O'Neill, when he came to the Monarchs in 1938, uh, he got paid one hundred dollars a month. Wow! Yeah, quite. Well, a, these quite current a major, major leaguers are making that every day. Every uh, minute. It's they're, crazy, they're, isn't it? Yeah, they're eating that for breakfast. That much money for breakfast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's dollars, crazy. Hundred dollars might not cover their breakfast, uh, but. Yeah, that's what it was. But at that particular time, you know, um, even there were a lot of guys in the major leagues who didn't stay in the major leagues because the major leagues weren't paying all that well. And if you want to go back to the Black Sox scandal, one of the reasons they threw that World Series because Kaminsky was pretty stinky with the coin. Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, you look back, and because of that, you, uh, you can't blame these guys for – you know, taking it uh, on the lamb like that. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of guys, they were playing what we call percentage baseball. So, they, you know, they were playing small towns. Uh, and, you know, so if we're looking at Iowa, they might play in uh, somewhere in Iowa. And they're, so they're going to play PC ball, which means the winner gets 40% and the loser gets 60 Excuse me, the loser gets 40 the winner gets 60 so in those particular cases, they had to uh, play good baseball so they could at least get the lion's share of the money. And if you notor- if you had a great uh, bit of notoriety, then you could get a good crowd. So, uh, you know, percentage baseball was what, when they came to Iowa, uh, if you weren't a Negro League team and on salary, you're basically playing PC baseball percentage. We're talking – we're talking and, to, and it didn't matter. It's, what's interesting is that segregation didn't keep uh, white people from turning out and paying their money to see a game, right? No, no, because they they realized when these uh, black teams came to their town, they realized that it was the social situation that kept them from playing in the major leagues. It wasn't talent. So they knew these ball players were good. And many times they would invite teams back over and over again. And um, uh, so 
teams like, for instance, the Capital City Giants, uh, they set up in Des Moines in 1916, and they worked out of Des Moines. And so they would play all in the region, and they could beat anybody in the region. And uh, so people would just invite them. And they, they had about a three- or four-year run where they were going around the area as well. So who would have been, if if guys like Buck O'Neill uh, came a little bit after that, who were some of the bigger name uh, black ball players that were prominent uh, back at that t- particular time? Well, some, some of the ones that have been uh, put into the Hall of Fame, uh, people seem to know them pretty good, so they might know about James Coupapa Bell or Oscar Charleston or John Henry Lloyd, or uh, they might know about those guys. But when you get into regional baseball, there are legends in regions who, uh, if you go into that region, and like I have, you start to hear about some of these great ball players. But, for instance, uh, uh, a name that was big in Iowa, he came and played just a little bit of league ball, was a guy by the name of Bumper Jackson in the 1950s. Thumper uh, was a big name. I don't know. Have you ever heard of him before? I have not. But but the name that I've always heard mentioned is Josh Gibson. Yes. Now, Josh Gibson, now as far as I know, I don't think Josh Gibson ever got into Iowa. But he certainly was an Eastern player playing for the home straight of Pittsburgh Crawford. So once you get up along the uh, Eastern seaboard, uh, uh, you know, or through Ohio, and you got to know something about Josh Gibson. The interesting around here, there's so many ball players, you know, closer to our vicinity that we could be talking about. That, uh, you know, <laughs> I get a chance to talk about all of these guys. So yeah, yeah, Josh Gibson was a great home run hitter, and um, but there was another guy by the name of uh, Willard Brown who played for the Kansas City Monarchs, who I think hit as many home runs as Josh Gibson did. Okay. Tell us a little more about him. Yeah, Willard Brown is uh, currently in the Hall of Fame. And uh, Willard Brown uh, played for the Kansas City Monarchs, came there in 1935, and uh, played through 1947. And he was one of the first four African-American players to go into the major leagues. And um, he holds the record. Now, he actually hit the uh, first home run by a black player in American uh, League baseball history. Did that with the St. Louis Browns. But he was the Monarchs' great home run hitter during that same period where Josh Gibson was getting all the headlines in the East. Willard Brown was uh, the guy uh, hitting him in the West. Now, I will tell you about Josh Gibson. He was a great hitter. I remember interviewing uh, Jesse Williams, who played for the Monarchs, and he mentioned that before a game, he went over to the Grays' dugout and uh, he saw a bat that had nails, and it was taped up and everything like that. And he said, Josh, this must be your old broken bat. And Josh said, I don't break bats. I wear them out. Uh, uh, uh. We are privileged to be talking with Phil S. Dixon. Uh, Phil has written a book about the Negro Leagues. And before we go any further, I know we've piqued the interest of a lot of the folks that listen to this podcast. So tell uh, folks how they can get more information and how to order your book. Well, I always have people come to my website, which is NLB, like Negro League Baseball Alive.com. 
Now, the reason I have them come there is because they can go to Amazon or any of those places, uh, and, you know, you put in Phil S. Dixon, uh, Negro League, and my books will pop up. But sometimes people want those books autographed, especially in this time of COVID when you can't really get out and, and do the signings like you used to. So people go to my website, they order the book, and I sign it and send it to them. Okay, and how much does the book cost? Well, my books run from uh, usually with the postage from thirty to forty dollars. Uh, one of my uh, books that is out of print, and I always I'm always looking for used copies, is a book I wrote in 1992, which was called "The Negro Baseball Leagues: A Photographic History," and that one's fifty dollars on my website. And uh, but it's out of print, so I'm always looking for used copies. So I sell used copies, but sometimes people want one signed by you, so you can get that on my site as well. And I would bet that they would make a great Christmas gift, huh, Phil? Oh, books are books are always a great Christmas gift, especially for a baseball fan. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, there's some books that I want that I'm going to get myself <laughs> over the holidays, and now's the time for me to read. Uh, and uh, it's kind of like the way I kind of keep myself engaged as we get into the baseball season, which. Right now, there's not much going on with baseball, and uh, it's all football. But us baseball fans, we still like to get a good read in here now. now well, I couldn't agree more with that. How, how long did it take? Now, it's obvious you've authored several books, but this latest one, uh, how long did that take you to uh, research and travel around and obtain all the information and stories that you acquired? Well, well generally, I'm working on about three or four books at a time. Um, in fact, uh, right now I'm working on several books. So uh, for me, I get up and I write every single day. I've probably done that for the last 10 years. Uh, every day I write something. So it's kind of like uh, it's nonstop activity for me. And uh, but, you know, I'll be sending out, you know, uh, uh, inquiries to publishers and say a publisher says, if we like this book, then I have to stop what I'm doing and turn around <laughs> and focus on that book. But, yeah, I try to write every day, so I don't have a certain length of time, but um, you, you need to have enough time to uh, make sure that uh, the statements you make in the book, that you can defend those statements and that uh, they're, they're accurate and, uh, and they reflect good, sound thought and reason uh, in, you know, when it comes to history. What what about uh, this this most recent book? Uh, how far do you travel? It makes sense you you cover most of the country in your pursuit of of the information that you provide. Yeah, you know my most recent book, the one on Disney and Daffy Dean. Matter of fact, I have a new book coming in January. I'll talk about that one in a moment. But when I in twenty fourteen to twenty nineteen, I took a two hundred city tour. And I drove the entire tour, tour, and I went back to cities where the Kansas City Monarchs had played, and I went to 17 states, 200 cities. And when I came out of that, it was kind of like I was barnstorming like the old Negro Leaguers. It changed my complete way of thinking about baseball. For instance, uh, now I had more of a genuine feel of what they experienced. And they would play 200 games uh, sometimes in one year and 200 cities, maybe it took them two years to get 200 cities. 
but I had done that in four years, and I left that experience uh, going into small towns, and I was I was up through Iowa uh, quite a bit during that during that time, and uh, I just learned a lot uh, about barnstorming, and then I also learned some of the fears of barnstorming, uh, because when I first started, I think Barack Obama was in office, and when I ended, Donald Trump was in office, and you could kind of sense a different flavor of the field when I would travel to cities and, you know, I would go to places. I can remember going to places and people would have the mega hat on and they'd come to hear me speak. I, I went to, I remember one place I was speaking, it was, it was uh, open carry and people came to hear my baseball talk with guns in their hip. <laughs> and so, but one thing that was always consistent, regardless of what hat they had on or what they had on their hip, they were baseball fans. And they loved a good baseball conversation, and that's what I gave them. Wow. Well, and that makes sense. You know, baseball is uh, America's game, and and uh, you're right. Base- everybody has played the game. Everybody has watched the games and, and are at least somewhat familiar uh, with with some of the players and, and uh, even some of the Negro League players. But and I consider myself a pretty astute baseball guy, but it's always a pleasure to talk with someone like you to, to learn more about the Negro Leagues, which had their prominent players, but we oftentimes aren't as familiar with them. So this oh, book is is imperative for any baseball fan. And, and, you know, we're trying to bring baseball back to the communities where it was actually played. So if I was to go to Mason City, Iowa, for instance, I'm going to talk about the Algonne Brownies playing there as early as 1901. Or um, there was another black team called the Lost Lake Island Giants. They would play out of, uh, I think it's Ruthen, Ruthen, Iowa. And uh, so if I go there, I'm going to talk about them. Uh, uh, Browns, Tennessee Rats would play in places like Butte, Iowa. And of course, Waterloo was a, a place that many teams went to. Uh, Clear Lake, Iowa, was another one. Charles City, Iowa. Charles City was a big, uh, big time town for attracting barnstorming baseball teams. A lot of people don't know that. So you you got a chance to talk about games that were played in that actual community, and that really, uh, that really was a great local, a great local story that wasn't being told. And so uh, I had the pleasure of telling those stories all through Iowa. That's great. We're talking with Phil S. Dixon, who has authored a book. The title of this book uh, is what, Phil? The, the, the title of my latest book is the Disney, the Disney and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. Okay. All right. And, and is it available in bookstores in addition to your website, which I would ask you to give again, please? Yeah, if you go to Barnes and Noble, if it's not on the shelf, you just tell them I want to order the book, and uh, you can definitely order it, and Barnes and Noble has it. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people are not getting out to the bookstores, and they're online, so it's you can find it all over. It, even even uh, You can even go to a Walmart.com, and they have it. So <laughs> it's not hard to find. And it's a very good book, and 
But, you know, it's my ninth book, so I've been at this for a while, and my next book I'm going to release uh, in January is going to be my 10th book, and my 11th book may come within three to four months after that. So uh, we're still out here. We're still telling the story, and uh, we tell the Negro League story, but we also tell a barnstorming story that includes towns and cities all over America that you wouldn't normally associate with the Negro Leagues. And today we were talking about a few things in Iowa, but, uh, you know, I could do that same thing with all 50 states. Phil S. Dixon, brother, is our, is our guest. Phil, let me ask you this. I'm going to put you on the spot. Is that okay? Are you all right, all right with that? Go ahead. I'm ready. Okay. All right. It makes sense that you're the perfect guy uh, to uh, for me to ask this question. You know, growing up, uh, when you talk baseball, uh, to anybody, invariably they're going to have their favorite team or their favorite player or uh, that type of thing. And it's usually uh, almost always a pretty prominent player with regard to their uh, ability and performance and what have you. In all of the research you have done, which is over many years of, of uh, doing so, who do you think is the best Negro League player of all time? Wow. Well, I, I can't say any one player, uh, but I can tell you this. I could, if I was to break them into categories, for instance, to me, the greatest uh, Negro League left-handed strikeout pitcher would be John Donaldson. Um, if, if you talk about the greatest all-around player, someone who can hit, pitch, play, play fields, play the field, could pitch and do all of that, it would be Wilbur Bullet Rogan. Um, uh, you, you could make a good, strong case for Martin Diego, who also came from Cuba. He played in the Negro Baseball Leagues. If, if you want to talk about someone just hit home runs, just that was a great home run hitter, you're going to talk about Josh Gibson or Willard Brown. And there's a few more that you could talk about. Uh, so it kind of depends on what aspect, but it, it would be hard to pick one ball player, you know, and say this is the greatest baseball player of all time. I mean, even if, if you know, when you do Major League Baseball history, you know, if you pick Babe Ruth to be the greatest all all time, you know, Babe Ruth didn't have any legs. He couldn't run. But, you know, but he could hit the long ball, right? But he also sure. struck out. He also struck out a whole lot, right? So right. If, if, if trying to pick one ball player to be the best is probably something that, I probably couldn't do very well, but I can tell you why I would pick different people in different categories. And like when it comes down to uh, 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 someone who was still a lot of bases, uh, I would put, pick uh, James Coupapa Bell, but I would also pick a guy named Eddie Dwight. And Eddie Dwight played for the Gilkerson Union Giants, who operated out of Sioux City in 1929, 30, 31. And matter of fact, uh, Eddie Dwight met his wife in Sioux City who became a big backer of mine uh, until she died at age 95. And he married her in Sioux, in, uh, Sioux City. So, um, and he was a great, great base stealer. He may never get the recognition, but he, he, he was as fast as James Kupaka Bell, um, no doubt about it. Now, of several of those players that you named, uh, hopefully they're all in, in, uh, Cooperstown, uh, because I know a year or two ago, 
there was a voting to include uh, some of those deserving uh, Negro League players. Are, are they enshrined at Cooperstown? Many hey, of them? Hey, hold that thought there. I hate to jump in here, but we're we're out of time. Can you stay on for another segment, Phil? Yeah, I can do another segment. All right. Well, this been a, we've been on with uh, Phil S. Dixon, author. He's he's the best storyteller. I I, I can't believe it. We're going to do a, uh, another episode coming right up. So hang in there.